Good morning, church. As you're taking your seats, uh, if you have not already, you can open to the passage our friend Carrie just read, Mark chapter 10, in verses 32 through 45. I hope you're doing well this morning. Um, I didn't have a, a really good night last night. I, I tried this new pillow. Uh, it was a, a new pillow that was made out of uh, corduroy, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard these. Have you guys heard of these pillows, these corduroy pillows? No, they're making headlines across the country, though. Okay, right? If you guys don't laugh at more at my jokes, I'm just going to keep making bad ones. So, But we're looking this morning at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32 through 45. We're continuing our series through the gospel according to Mark, trying to look at this foundational question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And, and this morning, Jesus reveals himself as the Son of Man. Now, I'm kind of a, I like classic, great, epic movies, um, especially, I mean, just top-of-line quality classic movies. And I'm sure we're on the same page as I'm talking here. Movies like Napoleon Dynamite and Nacho Libre, thank you, Kyle, and Princess Bride, Goonies, they're coming to mind. Yeah, but these are not normally the epic movies, uh, the classic movies that, that probably come to mind. You're, you might be thinking of Lord of the Rings or uh, the Dark Knight trilogy or Gladiator. But what makes to me a, an epic, a classic, a great movie is not only great actors and a great plot, but great music. Normally, normally the great m- movies have great music. And one of my favorite guys who, who writes a lot of great stuff, I didn't realize how much he did, is a guy named Hans Zimmer. Have ever heard of this guy? Just listen to some of the things that he's, that he's written music to. The Dark Knight Trilogy, The Lion King, Pirates of the Caribbean, Interstellar, Inception, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down. I mean, these are phenomenal movies. Another one like him is, of course, John Williams. Another great. Listen to this. Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Superman, Jaws, E.T., Indiana Jones, Saving Private Ryan, The Patriot, the list goes on and on and on. And in a lot of these great movies and these epics, there's, there's like a theme song, right? So when this particular melody and, and song comes, you know, okay, this is the hero, or this is the, the great battle scene, or this is kind of the climax, the central part of the movie. And I want you guys to know that as we come to this passage this morning, especially 1045, that this theme music of the Gospel of Mark, this, this central verse that, that kind of defines the Gospel according to Mark, Mark 10, 45, we should start to be here, this, this music, this classic theme music is coming out. If it's not George, not George Lucas, John Williams or, or Hans Zimmer, this great music, because Mark 10, 45 is what, what many people say is, is the central verse of the Gospel according to Mark. People say it actually breaks up the Gospel according to Mark as as what he does uh, beforehand, revealing himself as the Son of Man, but then suffering there afterwards and leading up to the cross. And that's the passage we find ourselves here this morning, starting in verse 32. It says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and, those, and they were amazed, and those who were followed were afraid. Now, normally, uh, Jewish rabbis did walk ahead of their disciples, but this is kind of a unique phrase up to this point in the gospel according to Mark. Uh, Jesus is walking ahead of them. It's the first time. It's unique in this instance. 
And I think what Mark is trying to get at, the first, very first point, is that Jesus leads his disciples. Jesus walks ahead of them. He's leading the way. And as disciples, just like the 12, we are to take our cues from Jesus. That song, uh, as I was thinking about this, the song that came to mind was the 1970s classic by Carole King, Where You Lead. Some of you girls right now might be thinking of the, the Guillermo Girls theme song. And I hope that I don't lose you for too long as you're thinking about uh, Gilmore Girls and are there going to be more episodes and what's to come of, of the last one that was just re-released on Netflix. But the song goes like this, where you lead, I will follow. Anywhere that you tell me to, if you need, you need to be with you, I will follow you where you lead. I had a hard time not singing that melody, but those are the lyrics. <laughs> Jesus is the leader. Disciples of Jesus follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple, a student, a follower. It's interesting, in fact, too, when you look at the New Testament, that a lot of times when we describe someone who follows Jesus, we call that person a Christian. But the word Christian only appears in the New Testament about three times. The word disciple, however, appears 269 times. Student, follower. This is what it means to to profess faith in Jesus, to uh, obey the, the Christian uh, walk of life and, and follow in the Christian faith, you are a disciple, you are a follower, you are a student. And what I love about Jesus is he's, he's the best leader. He leads by example. I'm sure many of you guys have had a boss in which uh, was maybe more of a, a micromanager or a boss in which just told you to do things but never kind of showed you how to do it or was willing to do things himself. Uh, I had a couple bosses like this at Les Schwab, my real job, um, but I had to work more than one day a week at, uh, <laughs> at Les Schwab. And, and the head boss, thanks Christian for that nod, uh, the head boss was really hard to follow, honestly, and people had a really hard time respecting him and listening to him because he, he was a boss, he was a, a slave master. But yet the assistant manager that we had, his name was Shane, he would do anything that, that he asked you to do. And he did it probably better than you did. He led by example. He was in the base working with us. He was hollering, throwing tires around, doing brake jobs, throwing shocks on. And he led by example. And the difference of the way people followed him and followed our, our head boss was, was like night and day. This is what I love about Jesus. He leads by example. He doesn't call his disciples uh, to just lose their life. He loses his life. He doesn't call his disciples to endure suffering. He faces suffering uh, head on. This is why I think the disciples are, are so amazed. Jesus is leading them right into Jerusalem, into the heart of the religious leaders, the religious center, the people that wanted to kill him and crucify him. This is why the disciples are made, not because of how fast Jesus walked or if Jesus walked with the pace I do, you'd be amazed at how slow Jesus walked. Um, they were amazed at his determination, his resolute conviction to press on to Jerusalem to death and suffering. He knows what's going to happen. And this is, in fact, why some of those who followed him were afraid. They likely have heard that Jesus talked about suffering. He promised suffering, and they're thinking, okay, if this is where he's headed, and suffering and death are are in his sights, we're going to follow in that as well. They were afraid. It says there in, in verse 32, and, and taking the 12, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. 
saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This term, Son of Man, is one of Jesus' favorite terms to call himself. It comes from Daniel 7. Uh, it's, a, it's a prophecy of the Messiah, and this term, I think, signifies a couple things. Number one, that, it, that Jesus would be man. He's a son of man. He's like us. But he's also divine. He's the Messiah. He's from God. And he has a, a particular mission to come and, and die and be delivered, be handed over to the Jews and Gentiles. Mark's way of saying that everyone's going to be in on this thing. They're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him. They're going to flog him and, and mock him and, and kill him. And I want to be clear here that, that this is not, Jesus is not getting forced into this against his will. Uh, Jesus is not going to somehow be overpowered by the Jews and the Gentiles. We've seen all the way up to this gospel of Mark that, that Jesus is dominant over everything and everyone. It doesn't matter if it's disease, if it's demons, if it's Satan himself, if it's even death. Jesus is sovereign. He's powerful. He's ruling over them. So when he's saying he will be delivered, he is surrendering himself um, to what is going to happen. And he, he knows it's going to happen as sovereign Lord. He says, I will be delivered. I will be condemned. I will be mocked. I will be spit on. I will be flogged. But don't worry. I will rise. It's all sovereign promises that he has. I will rise. The Son of Man will rise on the third day. And after this third promise of, of suffering, this is in fact the third time that Jesus has, has promised his, his crucifixion, his death, his suffering. It's interesting as you look back across the gospel according to Mark, how the disciples have been so slow, and you might say dumb, in their understanding of, of what this really means. The first time Jesus talked about this, Peter rebukes him. Remember this story in Mark chapter 8? Peter rebukes him, no, Jesus, you can't die. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but I don't normally like to be called Satan. So, But maybe that uh, wouldn't be a bad thing to be called if, if that's what we were like, Peter, so against the will of Jesus. Man, we're like Satan. Second time, Mark 9.34, Jesus talks about his, his death and his crucifixion. And then the disciples, they start arguing about who's the greatest. Remember this one? So then, listen to what happens in this one, that they... Jesus is talking about his, his suffering, his death. And James and John, one of Jesus' best friends, his inner three, they come up to him and they ask him this question. Or they tell him, really. Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. The nerve, right? Who is this? I mean, are they treating Jesus like sovereign Lord? Like, master? Seems more like they're treating Jesus like an errand boy, a butler, a genie, who really exists to give them what they want. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. So bold. Talking to the creator, the king of kings, the sovereign lord. And before we jump into how sinful and prideful and self-centered that is, I just want to say on the front end that they're really not that far off, actually. Jesus himself says this in John chapter 14, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, and greater works he will do, because I'm going to the Father. 
Mark 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Anything you ask Jesus in his name, he will do it. What's really important, though, is, is that, that little phrase attached there. What does it mean, in Jesus' name? Surely it's not a magical formula. I've known this from my experience. When I just say, in Jesus' name, I don't necessarily get everything I want. And I don't know, sometimes you, you come across people who pray like this or they think that is some sort of magical formula. It's, it's not. That's not what it means. Uh, or if people say, and I just know that in Jesus' name, do this. Or in Jesus' name, I command you to, to do something. Or in, in Jesus' name, uh, it gives me some sort of like advantage with God. Like God's not up in heaven hearing prayers and he's like, oh, someone just said in Jesus' name. I'm going to listen to that one more carefully. That's not how it works. What praying in Jesus' name means is that you're praying in the authority of Jesus. Or you're praying according to Jesus. You, you, in fact, you can pray because of Jesus. The, the only reason that really God will listen to you is, be, is because of Jesus. Because you're reconciled to him. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In other words, we can approach God the Father because of what Jesus did for us on the cross in forgiving our sins and reconciling us to God. In Jesus' name means we come on the basis and work of Jesus. But also praying in Jesus' names means that you are praying according to his will, according to his purpose. It's what 1 John 5 says. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So praying in Jesus' name is praying a because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, but also praying according to his will. So Father, if, if this is your will, in Jesus' name, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. So praying in Jesus' name is really not even necessary in prayers. It, it might actually be beneficial for us to maybe not use that as much so that people don't get the wrong idea of what that phrase means. Or maybe we, we explain what that phrase means. So Father, I ask this because of what you did and according to your will. Amen. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. There's, there's a huge part of motive. And we know from James and John's request that their motive was not in Jesus' name. It wasn't. They asked, Jesus, help us get great. Jesus, glorify us. That's our prayer. Glorify us. And when we read this, we can see the disciples were like, man, these guys are buffoons, idiots. How could they ask Jesus this question? But we should also be asking, how are we being idiots? How are we missing this? Where is our pride and where is our ego when we miss this? Because looking at James and John is, is honestly like looking into a mirror. We can see our selfishness and Mark hopes that we see how foolish we look in the disciples. And in their request, they're coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you know, you're not really that satisfying. You're not everything to me. I want other things. I want, I want to be great. I want to sit at your right and your left hand. And I was thinking about this in my own prayer life. Man, how often do my prayers are, okay, Jesus, I have this plan. Bless it. Bring it on, Jesus. I've got this. It's lined out. 
I've got a, a heading and three bullet points. Looks like it's going to be really good. Why don't you just bless me, Jesus? How often do your prayers focus on thanking God or praising God? Or do we jump right into, here's what you have to do for me, God. Here's my to-do list. Jesus shows great patience with these stubborn, slow-witted disciples. He, he actually asked them, what do you want me to, to do? He doesn't say, how dare you talk to me like that? You know who I am? It says in verse 35, or verse 36, excuse me, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus is such a patient leader, a gracious leader. He's patient with his disciples who are works in progress, growing in their understanding of Jesus, growing in their understanding of what the cross means. doesn't say, hey, take that question back. Back up a second. He asked them, and they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, in Jewish thought, the right and left hand were like the the best positions besides the king. Right hand, the best, and, and the left hand was second best. This is what these guys are asking. We want to be right there with you, Jesus. We want to be the best in your glory. Yeah, let's do this, Jesus. Glorify us. They're headed to Jerusalem, and they might be thinking, okay, if, if Jesus is going to uh, die soon here, but hopefully he's going to establish his kingdom. We want to get in on it before... Uh, he can hear a request and he can respond to us and, and give us the best places in his kingdom that he's going to establish. A guy by the name of John Stott says it like this, that our world is full of James and Johns. Go-getters, status seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievements and everlasting dreaming of success. And I love what Jesus says in verse 38. You have no idea what you're asking. You don't get it. You have no idea. Do you even know what my right and left hand and my glory means? Because there's a lot of irony in this request. Like Jesus has just talked about his suffering. He's talked about his greatness in regards to suffering. And they're talking about greatness, probably not in reference to suffering. They're probably not hearing that because they don't really want to. You guys ever do that? Read across something in the Bible that you don't really like, so whoops, shift that over to the side, and I'm just going to focus on the things that I like. If they were listening, they would know that the kingdom greatness is about servanthood. Jesus shows again and again that in his kingdom, the servants are the greatest. Jesus, in fact, is the, the suffering servant. He is the great leader. He's not going to overthrow political power. He's actually going to be slaughtered by it. They were thinking of glory and greatness and victory in a different sense of what he was. He was talking about greatness and suffering and betrayal and flogging and death, and Jesus shows his glory on the cross. And in fact, there is a guy who's at his right hand and his left hand in his glory, but they're crucified next to him. I don't really think that James and John are thinking, Jesus, we want to be crucified right next to you in your right and left hand, in your glory, where the glory of Jesus is revealed in his grace and his justice. He asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized? These are kind of strange phrases for us, but the cup would symbolize the wrath of God. This, the same phrase and idea that Jesus prays in, when he's praying on Mount Olives right before his death, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
remove this wrath, this wrath that's going to be poured out, this divine judgment, God's hatred towards evil and everything that hurts and damages his creation, the wrath, be able to drink this cup, but the baptism. The word baptism means immerse. And what Jesus is saying, he's using a metaphor here that I'm not just going to be sprinkled with suffering. I'm not going to be drizzled on with suffering, that great Seattle word with about our rain. I'm going to be dunked in suffering. I'm going to be immersed in suffering. Are you able to take suffering and be dunked in it? And just kind of seems like without even thinking, they say, we're able. We can do that. Oh, yeah. We can do that, Jesus. Yep. Now, again, most likely they did not understand what they were saying yes to because I don't think they would have said it that quickly. They most likely didn't understand what this meant or what exactly was involved in being a disciple. It's surprising they would have agreed so quickly if they knew what Jesus was talking about in regards to suffering. And Jesus tells them, you will drink this cup. You will suffer. James is going to be killed with the sword. He's going to die. You will suffer and die. John is going to experience suffering. He's going to be exiled all alone by himself after he was tortured by the emperor Domitian, sent alone and dying all alone on an island by himself. You will suffer. You will die. This is going to happen. And get this. The other 10, they're listening to this conversation. And one of my favorite words as of late, you guys know this, verse 41, when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're very angry, very strongly angry. And the anger is probably because they were beat to the punch. They wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in glory. James and John beat them to that. They weren't angry because they were mad at James and John for asking such a prideful, sinful question. They were angry because they wanted to take it to prominence and greatness and glory. They didn't ask that question first. They were indignant. One commentator said it like this, the disciples would rather bear a grudge than a cross. You can almost hear the, the little toddler or the, the child saying, but I wanted to be at Jesus' right and left hand. Jesus calls them and says in verse 42, I'm going to redefine. I'm going to try to give you another illustration. Come on, guys, start to get this. Come on, guys, please get this. You know how those, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them? It shall not be so with you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. You know how everyone else uses authority and power to rule over people? That's not supposed to be like that with you. You are called to be servants. If you want to be great, serve. In the kingdom, in my redemptive rule and reign, Greatness is, is not defined how the world might define greatness. It's defined by service. And the word that is used there in the Greek is the word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon. It means servant, the one who serves, and it connotates a kind of uh, a task that not only people might want, like serving tables, not really a glorified, look-at-me kind of position. 
But then he says even a stronger word. If you want to be first, you must be slave. There, it comes from the, the Greek word doulos. It means legally owned by someone else. And your purpose and your livelihood are determined by your master. It means one who is totally owned by another and possesses no rights except those given by his or her master. That is what we are called to be. If you're here, sitting here thinking, man, I want to be great. I've got this ambition for greatness. I want to be glorified. I don't want to be last. I don't want to live a, a mediocre life. I don't want to kind of be meh in the middle. I want to be great. Yeah, that's a good ambition. Let's do it. But serve. Become a slave. Jesus is saying that following me means humility and service. As you follow Jesus, as you grow as a disciple, it does not mean climbing up some ladder in prestige and honor. It means bending your knee and serving, picking up the towel and serving. And here it comes, right? You guys ready for the theme music? The music that's, that should be coming on in your head? Mark 10, 45. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And this is what, the crescendo. The whole, the whole orchestra is in this one. Here we go, theme music. Jesus serves those he leads. He came to serve. This is what sets Jesus apart from every other founder of every other major uh, religion. Jesus did not come primarily to be an example. He did not come primarily to, to uh, teach on some new way of life. He came to serve and, and die, and give his life for a ransom for many. He leads by example. Greatness isn't in service, and, and I'm the greatest because look at how much I'm serving. Look at what I'm about to do. I, I came here to serve. And if anyone had the right, the authority to say, when he arrives on scene, you low people, you commoners, come worship my lordship and my kingliness. It would be Jesus. If anyone had the right to do that, it would be Jesus. But Jesus has not come on the scene in Jerusalem in full glory and riding a horse and commanding people to fall down and worship him. If he could, he could just say a word and level people on their face in worship of him. But he doesn't do this. He comes and he enters the world as a baby, a helpless baby. He's born in a feeding trough. He's raised in a podunk town that, like a country little town that no one is really, no one great comes out of this town, Nazareth. He becomes a carpenter, lives a simple life, an impoverished life. The Bible says he didn't count himself equal with God, but he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. This is what greatness is. He starts serving people. He cleans diseases. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He redirects his disciples. He serves people by teaching them. He washes disciples' feet. Ultimately, he dies on the cross. He comes to die. And if you're curious about the Christian faith or are thinking about what following Jesus means, I just want to say that there is no other God who serves who will outserve you than Jesus. There's no other God who will outserve you like Jesus. Jesus is the only God who will ever serve you more than you ever serve him. We can't have this mentality of, well, I'm just going to keep a note and track of all the things that I do for Jesus. I got this list of, see Jesus, how I served you in this way? Look at all Jesus, how I, how I served you. 
you, you kind of owe me. Man, no. You will never outserve Jesus. You will never serve Jesus so much that he owes you. Jesus has served you perfectly. And, and Jesus not only serves, he ransoms. And this is not a word really that I don't think is, I use very often in, in my common day language, ransom. The word means uh, to obtain the release of paying a certain price or to release after receiving a certain payment. Ransom is like buying back a captive or a slave. So the ransomer would, would pay and bring a huge sacrificial payment to release the slave or prisoner and uh, bring freedom to the prisoner. That's, that's the idea here that's being used, ransom, similar to the word redeem, pay back. And Jesus has given his life as a ransom for many. And this word for here could also mean in the place of, or instead of, getting at the reality that Jesus is our substitute. It's a big fancy term that theologians use, uh, substitutionary atonement. Jesus is our substitute. He suffers and is the ransom in our place. He's the payment to release us from the enslavement to sin, to Satan, to death. Jesus is our payment. He is the one who drinks the cup of wrath that is not poured out on us. He is the one that is condemned so that we are never condemned if we trust in him. Jesus takes the righteous judgment of God so that we can walk in freedom from sin and self. But Jesus doesn't ransom us so that we can do whatever we want. I think that's kind of a mistake and an abusal of grace. A lot of people think that freedom is doing whatever we want. But I would argue that's not really true freedom. A guy named Tim Keller says it like this. Freedom then is not the absence of limitations and constraints, but it is finding the right ones, those that fit our nature and liberate us. But the Bible talks about we once were slaves of sin and now we're slaves of righteousness. Jesus buys us back and, and we're his. We're not our own. And an illustration I like to do when I think about this is talking about freedom and, and freedom in Christ, meaning that we are free to operate as we were intended to according to our design, that we have these right limitations and restrictions that are, are for our nature and for our good, is like a fish in water, like a fish in a fishbowl. Now try to put yourself in, in a fish's place in a fishbowl. You might think, I'm really confined by this glass. Look at all this, this small space I have. I want to get out there. Look at all the space they have. See a little pet fish? You guys imagine yourself as a pet fish just for a second? Just think about you know, Nemo and that kid banging on the glass and really loud and shocking your world. Now, if you were to fit fish and you thought, well, this is too constraining. I don't like the, all these limitations in this fishbowl. I want to get out there. And you jumped out of your tank. We know what would happen. Flop around for a little bit. It would be kind of sad ultimately would suffer and die. We know that for a fish, water in, in this fishbowl is a good restriction limitation. And when we are called to be free, to, free in Christ, when Jesus ransoms us and we are a slave to Christ, a slave to righteousness, we are returning to our fishbowl. Whereas we tried to jump outside our fishbowl and, and function and, and, in ways we thought and look at all that space out there and, and look at those humans, I want to function like them and we suffer and, and we die. Jesus returns us to the fishbowl. Freedom is living how you were intended, how you were designed. 
We can't take freedom and, and grace to mean that we can just do whatever we want. There's, in fact, a, a group of a Christians, a church in the New Testament that, that kind of had this, uh, this, mis, this bad line of thinking, this misinterpretation of, of freedom in Christ, the church in Rome. They thought, well, freedom in Christ. God's grace covers everything, man. I can, I'm going to go get drunk on Friday and just ask for forgiveness on Saturday. Thank you, Grace. Love it. Nice. Freedom in Christ, bro. You ever heard this? No? Give me some nods, please. That'd be great. Thank you. Paul says in, in this in, in Romans 6, and I encourage you to, to do some study on this this week. Look at Romans 6 if you're interested in this. When Jesus saved you, you become a new person. The old self is set on sin, has died. And if you died in sin, you won't live in sin. In other words, dead people don't sin. If you have been saved by Jesus, your old self was crucified with him on the cross. This is what he says in Romans 6, starting in verse 5. For if you have been united with him in his likeness and his death, in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Verse 8, now we have died with Christ. But what Paul doesn't say here is, even though Christ has ransomed us, he's bought us back, we are slaves to righteousness, we're dead to sin, that we automatically never sin anymore. You don't have to be a Christian for longer than a minute to know that you still sin. When you're dead to sin, it doesn't mean you're automatically like, you never sin anymore. I'd love that. That'd be great. I'm looking forward to that day. That doesn't happen. What Paul's saying is we have to continually consider ourselves dead to sin. Because he still commands us that we're to consider ourselves dead to sin. Call yourself dead to sin. We have to continually consider ourselves dead to sin and fight against our, our pride, our self-centeredness, and our, and our sinful self. This is why he says in Romans 6.11, Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Romans 6.13, Don't go on presenting the bodies of your members to sin as instruments of righteous, unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. In other words, practice who you are this weird way that the gospel works and you become who you are. In Christ, we are to continually become who we are. We are ransomed. We are not our own. We were bought with a price and we have been ransomed by Jesus. We are, we're his. He's our master. We are to live in complete submission and surrender to him. So if you're a disciple when it comes to what you're to do with your life, how you're to live, there's one person you take orders from and not the person who looks at you in the mirror. Jesus is your master. Jesus ransomed you. You are his and you owe him everything. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You were ransomed. That's what he's getting at here. You were bought back. And we can't think that we can accept Jesus' ransom without accepting Jesus' ransom. We can't accept Jesus buying us back and, and redeeming us from sin and not recognizing us, not recognizing that we are actually bought by him and, and he is our master now. As a disciple, you can't come to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, I love what you say here about grace and forgiveness. I love what you say about blessing. But when you're talking about serving and, and you're my master and you're my sovereign Lord, can you not say that? I don't like that. You can't come to Jesus and say, 
Jesus, I like what you say here in this section, but anything that you call me to do that I don't want to do, I'm not going to follow you. You can't pick and choose what Jesus ransoms you from. He's, he takes everything from sin and Satan and death in you, and now you're his. He's your master. You owe him everything. Can't say, well, I'm saved, uh, but I don't really want to serve. Don't really want to grow in, in love and humility. It doesn't work like that. You're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. Your good works, your service toward others, your sacrificial love, your generosity, they don't save you, but they are signs that you have been saved. So if you're here this morning and, and you're a Christian, you're a disciple, and you think, well, yeah, I'm saved, but I really hate service. I really hate loving others. I really hate putting others above myself. Ask yourself these questions. If you are not producing love and service and forgiveness and compassion and humility, these are signs that you might not actually be saved. The faith that you claim is not real. Your transformed heart that you claim to have received in Christ is, is not real. Because the more you understand Jesus and his cross and his love, the more you will want to serve and love others. The more you think about and, and observe the cross of Christ, the more that you will be humbled. Practically, this means that as disciples, we are to be marked by humility and service. I think in, in three primary areas. We're to be marked by humility and service because the cross levels the pride and, and the arrogance and the self-centeredness that we uh, oftentimes have. It brings the prideful down, but at the same time, it also lifts the self-condemning, the weak, the, the humble up. On the cross, we not only see how wicked and sinful and prideful we are that Jesus had to die for us, but we see that he did so by choice. He wanted to do so. He wanted to, to accept us and raise us up and, and love us. On the cross, you see how much Jesus loves you and cares for you. The gospel is something like this. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed, but through you I'm more accepted and more loved than I ever dared hope. The two-sided uh, nature of the cross, what it does. I wanted to read for you guys a quote uh, from this book by Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. If you've never read any of Tim Keller, he's the man. I want to meet him one day uh, because, man, I, I love this guy so much. I, I was talking with a friend over coffee this week uh, who listens to uh, some podcast by a guy named Matt Chandler, and he also references Tim Keller a lot, and, and uh, Matt Chandler calls Tim Keller the, the Christian Yoda. Uh, he has so much wisdom and when he says something, you want to listen to him? I wanted to read you this about how the gospel transforms us. Without any experience of God's grace, people who feel they have succeeded in life feel confident but are not humble before others who are wrongdoers. People who feel they have largely failed in life are humble but not confident and joyful. But the gospel transforms us so that our self-understanding is no longer based on our performance in life. We are so evil and sinful and flawed that Jesus had to die for us. We are so lost that nothing less than death of the divine Son of God could save us. But we are so loved and valued that he was willing to die for us. The Lord of the universe loved us enough to do that. So the gospel humbles us to the dust and at the very same time exalts us to the heavens. We are sinners but completely loved and accepted in Christ at the same time. 
How do you get the power of grace? You can't create this power. You can only reflect it to others if you have received it. If you see Jesus dying on the cross for others, forgiving the people who killed him, that can just be a crushing example of forgiving love that you will never be able to live up to. But if you instead see Jesus dying on the cross for you, forgiving you, putting away your sin, that changes everything. He saw your heart at the bottom but loved you to the skies. And the joy and freedom that comes from knowing that the Son of God did this for you enables you to become humble and loving and compassionate and gracious and generous. That is what the gospel does. It should reflect humility and service, number one, in our thoughts. When you understand what Jesus' ransom means, when you understand what the cross did, when you understand all that Jesus went through for you, you will grow in mental humility. You won't have a smugness. You won't have an an arrogance. When we see the disciples fail again and again and again in, in the Gospel of Mark, we need to realize how hard it is to really understand what Jesus' death means. This is what we're doing. This is how we grow as disciples, trying to understand more and more what does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection mean? How does that affect everything that we do? How does it, the claims of the gospel affect everything that we do in its application and, and implication on our life? If you're a disciple, your thoughts, consciously or unconsciously, shouldn't be, unconsciously, subconsciously, excuse me, shouldn't be uh, thinking a superiority to others or thinking that you've nailed it, thinking that you've got it all together. I just want to say this morning, if you feel like that, you don't. I just want to say that because I love you. You don't. You are not as awesome as you think you are. I can say that in love. And, and I, I mentioned this in a, in a couple, maybe it was a month ago, that there was a, a study that came out about how people thought about themselves. And, and the overall uh, kind of conclusion of the study was that the average person thinks that they're better than the average person. As disciples, will you continue to, to fight against the same way, the same pride, the same ego that you used to have? As a result, you will be humble. You will be growing in humility. I think this is what a lot of our problems come forth in our life from this. I was thinking a lot about stress and worry. And what really happened when, we're, when we experience uh, really aggravated stress, a stress that's kind of controlling, that captivates our thoughts, is I think what really we're thinking is the life that I have planned is not going as I want it to. I have a great plan that needs to be accomplished. This is where worry and stress can come from. Real humility used to think, believe that I don't know the plan and the best plan for my life, but God does. He has me in his hands. I will submit to him. He knows more and he knows better than I do. Real humility means that you can laugh at yourself. Real humility means that you can reflect and be self-critical of yourself. Real humility means that you don't hold grudges. You forgive others. Because when you hold a grudge, what you can really say is, and what you really think is, I'm going to hold a grudge because I would never do that to someone. It's pride, it's arrogance. Secondly, we should be humble in our words. 
since salvation is solely by God's grace, and we realize that there's nothing good in us or there's nothing better about us that is, is why we are recipient of grace, then we should know that we are no better than anyone else and we should not talk like we're better than anyone else. We should not call names that are demeaning or derogatory of anyone else. We should not try to talk about ourselves and promote ourselves as if we need to be promoted and, and uh, accepted and glorified. Since Jesus loves you and accepts you infinitely, you don't have to prove yourself. Maybe you do this. Maybe you, you can think of people right now that do this all the time. They have this skill, this masterful skill of every conversation they can weave back to themselves and talk about themselves. You guys know these people? Again, I say this a lot. If, if you don't know these people, you're, you're probably that person. <laughs> Having Jesus' ransom be at the center of us, and, and when we think about what that means, we should have humility in our words. We are freed from talking about ourselves, from validating ourselves, from trying to earn acceptance from God or others. We are freed to use our words instead to build up, to encourage, to love. And finally, we should be humble in action and service. Disciples will not only have humility in their thoughts and their words, but it will flow in service and, and love towards others. And what's great about serving is it's for everyone. It's not really that hard, besides your pride and getting rid of that. Anyone can serve. I came across a quote this week from Martin Luther King Jr. It said, everybody can serve. Anybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to have your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato or Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You need to have a heart full of grace. You need a soul regenerated by love. You don't need a certificate or a license to serve. And there's never been a better time to serve than right now. Is your life marked by service towards Christ and towards others? Or does your life tend to be marked by self-serving means and activities? Another practical way I think this plays out in, in action is that as disciples, as we grow in humility, we should be great listeners. We are more concerned about what someone else has to say than, than our own thoughts and, and words. We can listen. But I don't want us to miss through this passage that this kind of humility and service and love can really only be learned not only in the gospel, but alongside the gospel in community. You can't learn this kind of humility on your own. We see this in the passage. We see this in the story. Jesus is not alone. He's not even one-on-one -on -one with the disciple. He's with his followers. That's at least 12. We learn humility from Jesus and from his family, from his people. This lesson that Jesus teaches happens because they're in community. The disciples are talking. They start to say something stupid. And Jesus uses this moment to instruct them, to teach them, to show them. As they're living together and walking together and talking together, they're learning from Jesus in community. If you show up on a Sunday gathering and, and you take notes and you think that's all you need to grow, I think you're sadly mistaken, my friend. You need community. You need deep, authentic relationships with others. 
if you're not interacting with others on uh, a regular basis throughout the week and in, in, in this kind of real relationship, I would argue that you're not really going to change. That change is the context, that community is the context for change. If you're not trying to be held accountable, if you're not trying to learn more from other Christians what this ransom means, what Jesus' death means, how it's to affect every aspect of our life. And not just going to community group as like you check it off your box, you check it off your agenda like you do at the Sunday gathering. I'm talking about real honest relationships where someone can look you in the eye and tell you that you're wrong. Someone can look you in the eye and tell you, uh, you've got, I can see this sin right here. It's pretty evident. It's huge. And as disciples, we are to have the humility in which when someone approaches us with that, we accept it. We know we're not that great. We know we're not that awesome. When someone challenges you and criticizes you and shows you that you're living out of the dead, sinful self instead of the, the self made alive in Christ, how do you accept that? Would you accept that? I think one of the things that we're really great at in, in church, in community, is accepting others, loving others, forgiving others, being gracious with others, but we are really lacking in truth. Oftentimes, in community group uh, and in community, as people are talking, it, it almost becomes as if the group can enable and encourage laziness, self-centeredness that can be masked and, and hidden as if it's some sort of grace and love. That's not grace and love. When you love someone, you will tell them the truth. When you love someone, if you, are, if you love your brother, you will feel a responsibility and a weight in their discipleship. And not just kind of the accountability that you guys should have on me to keep me accountable as leader, but a responsibility and an accountability to each other. That you are a family, you are a body. If one part suffers, the whole suffers. Are you trying to learn together and grow together and not remain stagnant? Are you trying to grow deeper in, in knowledge and experience and delight in Jesus? This past week, all three of our gospel communities did, did an exercise to try to reflect on how well we think we're doing, on our responsibilities to each other as individually, our responsibilities as, as a group, and how we perceive those responsibilities are, are going, and, and how we're living in, in light of what Jesus commands. And I want us to think about this as a whole as a church this morning. How are we doing? How are we serving? Hebrews 3.13 says this, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This word exhort means encourage, beg, plead, invite, call together, console, urge. There is a responsibility that we have to each other to exhort, to encourage, to build up, to challenge every day so that we're not hardened by sin. Do we, do we feel this weight? As Christians, we're not called lone wolves, isolated from ourselves. We're called sheep. We need each other. We need the shepherd to, to lead us and guide us. W what is your mentality on this? And as I was thinking uh, and reflecting on, on what the different gospel communities shared, as I was praying and reflecting on this as a whole, as a church, one thing came to mind and and uh, 
I hope this is accurate. Um, if it's way off, you guys can talk to me afterwards. I think as a church, we are very good at serving and loving our brothers and sisters. We are very good at that. This idea of a gospel-centered family, we, we own that. I, I love what, what Carrie just shared because th- this is the vision. Loving one another, serving one another, encouraging one another, becoming family. I love that. I think we are very good at serving and loving our brothers and sisters. An area that I think we can grow in is loving and serving our neighbors. It's really easy to serve each other, right? We like each other. We believe the same things. We have a a love for one another. But do you are inclined and are you uh, excited to serve those who maybe you don't even like or don't like you? or don't believe the same thing as you. Have a different belief and, and worldview. Just as we reflect in, in, in gospel communities as families within the family, I ask that we reflect this morning on, on our overall responsibility as a church. Not only to each other, but to our city, to our neighbors. I encourage you, I exhort, I beg, I plead, I call you to reflect on this. If you are ransomed by Jesus, if you've considered yourself dead to sin, if you are all his, how are we doing in loving our neighbors? In pursuing those who are other people aren't pursuing or we don't really want to pursue. We're going to reflect on this um, right now as we transition to what's called communion and the Lord's Supper, where we remember Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We remember Jesus' ransom, Jesus' purchase, Jesus' redemption of us on the cross. As he was on the cross and his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, we experience complete forgiveness and acceptance as a, as a son, as a, as a daughter, as a child of God. But not only do we reflect on this, but we anticipate Jesus' coming return to right every wrong, to restore and fully establish his kingdom. So I ask now that as you reflect and uh, as you come to the table at your own pace, uh, that, that you reflect on, on, on these things. And if you are not yet a disciple, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that instead of coming to the table, you, were, you think about the words that are on the screen or you, you think about the words that are found on uh, the sheet, notes for guests that have some prayers in there that you can follow along with on what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a Christian. Uh, but I, I ask you guys to, to come forward at, at your own pace and, and the table is now open. Let's pray. Father, this week I was reminded so much of my, my pride, my arrogance. Lord, I am just like James and John, coming to you to ask you to make me great. I want to be the best, Jesus. I want to have the best church. I want to have the best sermons. I want to have so many people following me on my podcasts. Make me great, Jesus. And Lord, thank you for revealing that sin, and thank you for continually working on me and, and using me and, and having grace on me. I thank you, Father, that, that your son, Jesus, is a patient leader. That he's patient and despite my, my sin and my stubbornness and my heart that is so often set on self and serving myself and instead of serving others and holding others above myself. Father, I ask that you would grow us in this humility. As we grow in understanding of what 
your life, death, and resurrection means, that it would make us humble people. That we know that there was nothing good in us. It was all based on your grace. And we live out of just complete freedom and joy in, in being yours and you being our master. And Lord, I ask that, that right now you would reveal and convict hearts that are set on self, that would rather do uh, things that are self-serving and, and self-promoting and uh, self-affirming than affirming others and, and loving others and, and serving others as you have loved and served us. Father, I pray that you would make us disciples who are deeply committed to one another in our service and our love, but also deeply committed to our city, deeply committed to those who are unlike us, who don't believe the same things we do, who don't hold the same uh, political views as us or stand to hold uh, world views as us, who don't do the same things as we do, Father, but you would, you would give us a heart for them that just as you pursued us as we were enemies and we were dead and we were slaves to sin, that we would pursue those who are right now in sin and, and like a fish out of water. Father, it would now be a time that is glorifying to you and honoring to you and, and would you be held out as, as uh, supreme and as the only thing worth following. Pray this. Uh, based on what you did for us on the cross and, and according to your will in your name. Amen.